please turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. This is our scripture reading this morning, Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 13. 5 to 15 is in your bulletins, that was a, a typo. 5 to 13 is our uh, scripture reading this morning. Jeremiah 17, 5 to 13. And then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Please give your full attention to it as it is now to be read. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited, uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there, is, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your word. It is more precious to us than gold or silver. We love it more than honey. And we thank you, Lord, for it, which is a precious gift to us. We thank you for what we have heard read. We pray, dear Lord, that you would use your word, that your spirit would guide us in understanding and discernment, that you would would give us the sense of what you mean by your word. We pray, dear Lord, that you would cause us to be humble and to sit under the teaching and the preaching of your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would be glorified now as your word is preached, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in last week's sermon, we, the passage itself, we read about God's ultimate rejection of Saul. A rejection that resulted in the loss of the word of God to Saul through the prophet Samuel. After this point in chapter 15, Samuel no longer had any direction with Saul for the rest of his life. But you remember that God had rejected Saul earlier. In chapter 13 as well, when Saul grew impatient while waiting for Samuel to come and to offer a sacrifice uh, prior to Saul leading Israel into battle. He waited, it says he waited uh, seven days, but he didn't quite wait long enough. And he decided to offer this unlawful sacrifice. And just as he's doing it, Samuel shows up. And Samuel told Saul in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And that brings us to our passage today in chapter 16, a passage in which God commands Samuel to go to Bethlehem and seek the man after God's own heart to anoint him as Israel's second king. God had given Israel what they wanted. He had given them a king. And the king that he gave to them was a king after their own hearts. Now Saul was and he will continue to be a willful and impulsive king. He'll be a king who tried to seize glory and recognition that weren't rightfully his. He did it in the past. He's going to do it again. And in our passage today, God tells Samuel to seek out a son of Jesse. Jesse, you remember who was mentioned at the end of the book of Ruth. God tells Samuel to seek out a son, this young man to whom God has already referred as a man after his own heart. 
But we need to keep this in mind here, and especially uh, through the end of 1 Samuel. Because 1 Samuel paints a very glorious picture of David. We need to remember that David was just as much of a sinner as Saul was. David coveted. David stole. David raped. David killed. And God, who knows the end from the very beginning, knew David would do all of these things and more when he chose David to be his anointed. I'd ask you to consider this thought as we make our way through the sermon today. In spite of the fact that God looks on the heart, still he chooses imperfect, sinful people to receive his everlasting love. Let me say that again. In spite of the fact that God looks on the heart, still he chooses imperfect, sinful people to receive his everlasting love. Well, today, we only have two points. The first point is fear of man all over again. And the second point is rejection and election. Nice rhymes for you today. Help us all to, uh, to have these stick in our brains. Again, fear of man all over again. That's the first point. And the second point is rejection and election. So let's look at the first point, fear of man all over again. Samuel, we see in verse 1 of chapter 16, was in a funk of unspecified length. And apparently it was long enough for our long-suffering Lord, sort of humanly speaking, to grow tired of it. Because in verse 1 he asks Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, it's strange that at least in one sense for Saul, uh, Samuel to be grieving over Saul, to, to be sorrowful over Saul. Samuel was against Saul being king from the get-go. He wasn't happy about Saul coming in and his king, or, or really any king. And so it seems like Samuel would have been glad about this ultimate, this final rejection of Saul as king. Israel's demand for a king came about because of their rejection of God as their king. And it also meant in an indirect way that the people had rejected Samuel because he was their judge. And when, when Israel had a king, they no longer had need of a judge. And so Samuel had gone through all of this for nothing. And he ain't happy about it. And so he's grieving over this whole matter. At least that's how it might have felt to him that it was all for nothing. And now he's in some sort of a deep depression. And God's remedy for Samuel in his depression is action. He tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. These are commands. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God isn't going to allow Samuel to sit around and mope any longer. He's going to go to Bethlehem, most likely from his home in Ramah, which is where uh, at the end of our passage in verse 13 it says that, that uh, Samuel goes to. Now, this is a journey of about 10 miles from Ramah south uh, through Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's a distance that Samuel would have regularly traveled in a day as prophet, as, as judge. And the purpose of this journey was for Samuel to anoint Saul's successor as king. Now, you would think that this news would pull Samuel out of his depression, out of this funk that he's in. You would think that Samuel would be eager to carry out this particular duty. You'd think he'd jump at it. 
But in verse 2, Samuel says to the Lord, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now this too is strange. Samuel has spoken some of the sternest, the hardest, the strongest words in this book. Up to this point in 1 Samuel, he has never been depicted as shrinking back from his duty as a prophet of God. In chapter 8, when Israel demanded a king, Samuel gave the people a stern warning about asking for a king. He told the people about all of the ways that a king would make their lives more difficult. When Samuel gave his farewell address as judge over Israel in chapter 12, telling them how they had done wrong in demanding a king, he reminded them that they had done all this evil, but that the Lord would not forsake his people. But now, just after Saul had told Samuel that the reason he held back from destruction, some of the possessions of the Amalekites, was because he feared the people, Samuel expresses fear of a person. And Samuel does so in the face of God's command to fill his horn with oil and go to Bethlehem and to anoint the next king of Israel. It's not outright defiance. And yet it most certainly is disobedience. Again, God will have none of it. He responds in verses 2 and 3 by saying, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. God doesn't even acknowledge Samuel's protest. He doesn't even acknowledge Samuel's fear of man. He tells him to go. Verse 4 says that Samuel did what God commanded. But when he got to Bethlehem, the elders of the city were trembling when they met him. They asked him, do you come peaceably? They too are fearful. They knew that as a prophet of the Lord, he was closely connected to the king of Israel and thus had power. And so they too trembled because of the fear of man. Now Samuel reassures them. He tells the elders that he has come to Bethlehem to make a sacrifice to God. And he tells them to go and to consecrate themselves. And he invites them to come to the sacrifice. And then Samuel found Jesse and his sons, and he consecrated them, and he invited them to the sacrifice as well. Now this fear of man is going to rear its ugly head again later in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is the passage that if you don't know about anything else in 1 Samuel, you know about this passage. 1 Samuel 17, where this giant of a man, this Palestinian or uh, Philistinian bully, stands before Israel and challenges them, and not a single man from Israel, from the army, Saul included, will stand up to fight Goliath. They're all trembling in fear. And it appears there in 1 Samuel 17 that there was only one man who had the courage to stand up to this great bully, David, the man after God's own heart. That's where we go next. In our second section of the sermon, Rejection and Election. Here we're going to return to the beginning of the chapter to consider what God is commanding Samuel to do. God had rejected Saul as king. And specifically, God had rejected Saul's family as the kingly line. Saul is going to continue on for a time. After David's anointing, he's going to continue on for a time as king. It's, it's unspecified. We're not clear. We, of course, read in Scripture that Saul served a total of 40 years as king. 
But as we saw in chapter 13, God has already chosen a successor. And God tells Samuel that he is sending him to Jesse because he has provided for himself a king among Jesse's sons. Now the word that's in verse 1 that is translated, I have provided, is translated elsewhere in our passage as look or see. One commentator translated the word, I have identified or selected, I guess would be another way to put it. God has seen the one who will be his king in Israel. He has made his choice and now he commands Samuel to go and to anoint him as king. God did not set his sights on David because God knew that David was going to be such a great man. He didn't choose David to be king because he knew beforehand that David was going to choose him. God chose David to be king despite the fact that he had known from before creation that David was going to be a sinner. He chose him over all of his brothers, as verses 6 to 10 tell us. But it wasn't because he knew that David was going to be such an exemplary man. And in verses 6 and 7, the word look or see, you read there in the English, it appears five times in one form or other. And there are two different Hebrew words behind the words look and see in English. Verse 6 says that when Samuel looked on Eliab, he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But God tells Samuel in verse 7 not to look on his outward appearance or his height. And when God tells Samuel in verse 7, For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but, God, but Yahweh looks on the heart. The word translated sees and looks is the same word that it was translated, I have provided, in verse 1. Before Samuel ever looked upon the sons of Jesse, God had already identified the man who would be king because he looks at the heart. He doesn't look at outward appearances. But as we said, David was not exemplary. It wasn't because God looked at David's heart and saw purity, perfection, perfect obedience, devout worship, the sins that David commits are heinous. And we cannot try to reduce them somehow. We need to call them what they are when we get to these sins. They're heinous. Second Samuel says that David saw this wife of Uriah and he sent messengers for her and he took her. He took her. Bathsheba was not able to give consent. If you believe in a concept such as statutory rape, that someone who is below a certain age is not able to give consent to sexual relations, then you have to see that what happens here is rape. Because Bathsheba cannot deny her king. These messengers most likely were soldiers. What can she do? David took her. And then to add to that sin, to compound that sin, David had her husband Uriah killed, murdered, to cover up the sin. He did everything he could to cover up the fact that she had conceived from this rape. 
He brought Uriah in from the field, from the battlefield, the field that he should have been on, where if he had been doing his duty as king, he would have been leading his people into battle. But he did not. And he brought Uriah home. He tried to get Uriah to have relations with his wife. And Uriah proved to be such an honorable man that he would not, not while his men were out on the battlefield. And so David resorted, resorted to a terrible, heinous sin of having Uriah murdered. David, brothers and sisters, was not an exemplary man. David was not worthy of our praise. David was a sinner. We struggle with this, though, don't we? We want these heroes of the Bible to be spotless. We want them to be without fault. And that's why so many children's story Bibles are not really very helpful. The heroes of the Bible bear no resemblance to the sinners of whom they speak. They're more like caricatures than true pictures. They paint things in a very positive light. They, they gloss over any kind of sin that's uh, evident, uh, that's spoken of in the Bible. And so if you read about David in most children's story Bibles, you could be forgiven for thinking that God had no choice but to choose David because he was such a great man, especially in comparison to Saul, this awful king who, who, who the people of Israel wanted. We forget, especially when thinking about ourselves and our own sin, that Christians still sin. And so when they do, we doubt whether their faith is true, whether it's, it's real. We question it. Well, I just don't know about that person. He's professing faith in Christ, but look at what he's doing. But take an example from what's going on in the world right now. A seminary friend of mine recently wrote this in response to people who have been calling into question George Floyd's profession of faith because of the allegations that are there and that are still being investigated, that he was passing counterfeit money in this store, which is why the, the police were called in the first place, and that he subsequent, subsequently was found to have drugs in his system. And this friend of mine posted this, and he, he acknowledges in this post that whether or not these allegations turn out to be true, Floyd did nothing to justify being murdered. And then he turns and addresses Floyd's professed faith in Christ. And he writes, Gross disparity between beliefs and behavior rightly raises questions about the authenticity of those Christian beliefs and profession. However, it does not conclusively answer those same questions. There are a number of factors to consider. Direction of one's life. The particular structure of one's besetting and remaining sins. God's providence in leaving us to experience the overwhelming power of some inner corruption or outer demonic temptation, etc. Christianity makes a man new before it makes him nice. Riffing on C.S. Lewis. Christ destroys reigning sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 2. Yet rem sorry, Christ destroys reigning sin, Romans 6, 2. Yet remaining sin is being put to death while mortal life shall last, Romans 6, verses 12 and following. God takes people who sin against him each and every day in thought, word, and deed and claims them as his own. But they are not transformed in an instant into perfect, sinless people. God, who looks on the heart and not on outward appearances, knew exactly what kind of man David was before David ever existed. 
God did not reject Eliab or Abinadab or David's other brothers because David was or would prove to be better or more virtuous than they. He chose David despite the terrible sins that he knew David would commit in the future. And in doing so, he showed his unfailing love to David, despite the fact that David failed many, many times. Don't whitewash the sins of God's people. To do so diminishes God's grace. To whitewash the sins of God's people makes it seem as if they were deserving. When we are not, In verse 11, Samuel asks Jesse if all of his sons have been introduced. And Jesse says that there is one who remains, the youngest, who is out tending to the sheep. And Samuel tells him to send for his son. Now, there, of course, again, in the children's story Bibles, David here is always portrayed as a young boy. And David, as he goes up against Goliath, he's always portrayed as maybe a 10-year-old, 12-year-old at most. There's nothing in the passage here, and even later in 1 Samuel 17, to indicate that he's a young boy. He is described as a youth, probably a lad. If we don't really use that term too much in our day. It's probably a more appropriate. He was a young man. There's nothing, when it talks about Saul's armor, David wearing that, there's nothing to indicate that Saul's armor was too big for him, as is so often portrayed in children's story Bibles. As if David's this little boy and Saul's armor is huge and David can't quite wear it. But Saul is described as being very much taller than the average person in Israel. And so David is, is a young man. Whatever age, late teens, early 20s perhaps, it's not described. Samuel tells Jesse to send for his son, and when David uh, arrives, he's described in verse 12 as, as ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. David, like Esau, had a reddish appearance. Esau is the only other person in the Old Testament who is described with the same word in Hebrew that is translated as ruddy here in chapter 17, verse 42. Think about that for a moment. Esau and David. Esau, the man who was rejected, the older son, rejected in favor of Jacob. David, the younger son, imperfect, a sinner, and yet he is the one who is chosen. Despite this description of David's physical appearance, that is not why God chose David. Despite the fact that he's said to have beautiful eyes, he's said to be handsome in appearance, that's not why he's chosen to be as king. The same God who chose David to be his own wrote these words, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God chose David in spite of the sins that he committed in his lifetime, and he had Samuel anoint him as king. Verse 13 says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. And this anointing with that horn filled with oil that stayed with David the rest of his life 
It's undoubtedly what David had in mind when he wrote Psalm 23, which we sang earlier. David remembers this anointing of his head with oil, and he understands that this is an anointing of the Lord. David had now been endowed by God with the Spirit of God to carry out the office of king on behalf of his people, though he would prove time and again to be an imperfect king. In the end, David and Samuel both were sinners in need of salvation. The good news is that God knew that they were both sinners, and he chose them to be the object of his love before mankind ever was created. And he did the same with everyone who truly believes in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he has broken the reigning sin in you. You are no longer under under its power and control. And he is now dealing with the remaining sin by the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work sanctifying you. You will continue to sin. You will continue to fail. You will continue to disobey. But God looked upon your heart before the days of creation and he, he chose you despite knowing exactly what you would do in your life. And brothers and sisters, in just a few moments now, we're going to observe, celebrate the Lord's Supper for the first time in, what, since March. And you're going to be called upon to examine your hearts. We read Psalm 139 together, not in unison, of course, but you read it along with me at the beginning of this worship service. Search me and know me. And in examining your heart, you are seeking, you're setting out to do, though you can't do it perfectly, you're setting out to do to yourself and for yourself what you want the Lord to do, to examine yourselves, to look deeply inward and to see yourself for who you truly are. You do yourself no favor. I do myself no favor by glossing over my sin, by whitewashing it. By trying to make it less than something that it is. In some way, trying to make myself worthy of this meal. We do ourselves no favor. In the same way that we do ourselves no favor when we gloss over, when we whitewash the sins of God's people. Whether it's David in the Old Testament, whether it's an apostle in the New Testament, whether it's your favorite hero of the Reformed faith today. Yes, we Reformed folk... We have our canonized saints. And we gloss over their wrongdoing and their sin. And they attain, they achieve in our lifetime a status that makes their word stand up higher and better than God's word itself does in our lives. Or at least it can if we're not careful. You do yourself no favors by glossing over the sins of others or your own. By sweeping it under the rug, by trying to hide it. God knows what you do in secret. He sees it. And though you might be successful at deceiving yourselves about your sin, you cannot deceive God. Come clean. Examine yourselves. Pour out your hearts. Expose your sin to the Lord. Free yourselves from the bondage of guilt because of hidden sin. If you truly believe in Jesus Christ, bear this in mind. You can do this kind of digging 
as you examine yourselves prior to receiving the Lord's Supper. And you can do so without fear. Why? Because you, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, have been accepted by the living and holy and true God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, your salvation is secure and God's Spirit is at work in you, even now at work in you. And He's making you more and more like Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. That is the truth of the gospel and that is what makes you able in the face of your own sin and its heinousness, the fullness of its ugliness and its dirtiness and its evil. That knowledge that Jesus Christ will never leave you nor forsake you, that is what enables you to come before the Lord with gladness and to receive this meal as a celebration and not as some sort of funeral meal. To receive it with joy instead of sorrow. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you because you have made us able to sing with gladness in our hearts. You've made us able, O oh Lord, to rejoice in the salvation that you have given to us. And Lord, as you see fit to expose to us in limited or great ways the sinfulness of our own hearts, the darkness of our own minds, we pray, Lord, that you would remind us again and again, over and over, of the fact that you have accepted us in Christ knowing full well all of the sins that we will ever commit. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to be grateful. We pray that as we partake of this meal in a few moments, that you would help us to do so with gratitude in our hearts. Because we don't deserve to partake of this meal. We don't deserve to enjoy this foretaste of the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Help us to partake with joy and gladness. Lord, thank you for your good word, the good news of the gospel. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.